This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an urban educator for more than 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, an educational consultant, an equity advocate, and the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the Counter Narrative Podcast. As always, thank you so much for rejoining. Well, that is if you're coming back. <laughs> thank you so much for rejoining and listening to yet another episode. Uh, if this is your first time, if you enjoy what you hear, make sure that you check out all of the other episodes and always feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single one. Because like most of those episodes, I always enjoy them. And I always say that I have an amazing guest. And tonight is no exception that I get to connect with an individual of of renown. She, she's been doing some amazing work. Uh, this individual and I, we actually touched base and we had an entire conversation before this conversation, one I wish that I had pressed record on, because if that is any indication to how this conversation is going to go, you are all in for a treat. So Dr. Teresa Sanders, how are you this evening? I'm well, Charles. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am looking forward to a very, very good show. Yeah, you know, I like I said earlier, based on our previous conversation, I'm really looking forward to diving in and seeing where this uh, conversation goes. It sounds like, you know, you and I could probably have several of these episodes focused on different areas. Um, so I'm very curious where this one's going to go. But before we do, before we jump into all of that, why don't you share a little bit about who you are? What, you know, what is your role in education? Maybe your journey on how you got there. And if you're so willing, maybe something about yourself that not many people know. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I am Dr. Teresa Sanders. Uh, I am a K-12 certified special education teacher. Um, and I've worked probably uh, about 16 years in public education. I left public education in uh, 2018, uh, and um, I struck out on my own and started Safari Small Schools. It's a micro school here in uh, East Texas, and it's geared towards uh, pre-K through third grade uh, students who, for whom the traditional classroom is just not a good fit. Typically, they have um, some pretty uh, challenging behaviors. They might be behind uh, socially or academically. And Safari Small Schools is there to meet their social and academic needs. And so they can thrive in the school setting. And thrive they do. They, they do because their needs are being met. So I'm a pretty outspoken opponent of public education. And I'm shameless about it. Anyone who has an argument for me, please feel free to bring your A game because, <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever you want to discuss, I'm ready to discuss it. And uh, the data speaks for itself. I, I, it just, the only thing good about public education at this point is, you know, the students and the great teachers who choose or for whatever reason remain there trying to make something out of nothing. And, uh, so I also present at education conferences. I'll be presenting uh, in January at the Hawaii International Conference on Education. And um, I'll be presenting on Safari Small Schools. I have also um, mentored uh, other professionals, helping them to get to where they need to be. Uh, I'm an advocate for parents as well. And pretty much that's, I'm an author I've published and, Got a couple of best-selling uh, titles in there, so I'm, I'm a little well-rounded. I know a little bit about something, but mostly I'm really focused on achievement, 
uh, particularly when children are very young and I'm very passionate about it. And that's where my heart lies. That's my purpose work. No, I appreciate you sharing. And, you know, I, I think you touched on, you know, something there, this idea that, first of all, unashamedly saying, hey, look, like public education, you're a mess. I'm calling you out. Like, let's have that conversation. I don't care who wants to have it. But also pointing out, like, this is not a student issue. It's not a teacher issue. Like, they're trying to navigate within a very messed up space. They and really just saying, are. like, it's not you. I'm not calling you out, teachers, educators, students. No. I'm, I'm calling out the system itself. And so, That's right. you know, I, I love this idea of the, the small schools, right? And, and maybe not just for students who are like, man, I'm struggling, right? Behaviorally, academically, whatever it might be. It's just, I remember, so my, my I have a grandson who, who is six at this point. And I remember him going into kindergarten for the first year, right? And as educators, his, his grandmother and I were so excited about his launch into education. Like this is it, right? This is our field. This is something that we are passionate about. And he was tossed into a kindergarten class with 20 something kids, right? Pushing, I think it was, believe it was like actually closer to 30, if not more. And we were like appalled. Yeah. And just, there's no way. And I remember having a conversation with administration and they said, well, yeah, but we, there's the teacher and there's a few aides in there. And I was like, I don't care how many, how many extra bodies you throw in there. Yeah. You cannot have 30 five-year-olds in a space and expect anything to be productive. <laughs> exactly. So when, when I read that of yours, it's like, you know, I'm making impacts, those five students at a time, I'm like, yes, because there's, there's, there's power there. But unfortunately, as you pointed out within our systems, within our structures, it's not built to do what's necessarily best. Right. And so That's I just, true. I just wanted to throw that out at the beginning and just say, thank you for saying that up front. Thank you. Yes, it's unfortunately not built um, to educate students in the true sense of the word. Um, I, I often, when I write, I refer to the illusion of education, mm. the smoke and mirrors, because that's essentially what it is. Our beautiful schools, our beautiful campuses, uh, these you know, lively classrooms with all this great, you know, material on the walls and, you know, these trending, trendy looking cafeterias and libraries and with the ergonomic furniture. It's so beautiful. Yet the kids can't read. So there's that, you know, and I think that uh, we have mastered the illusion of education and public education. The data is there for anyone to see, but yet the majority of stakeholders either don't want to see it, don't know how to access it, in some cases deny its accuracy, but it's the system's own data that's being provided. And what we're seeing is, is just perpetual failure being funded and nobody seems to be disturbed by the dire outcomes that we're dealing with right now. Well, you know, I, I can only imagine, right. It, it's, it's a scary place. It's a, to say, Hey, you know what? These, these things that we're doing, they're not working. Right. It, to, to admit fault, right. To admit misunderstandings or the lack of understanding. And so, like you said, right. I'm, I'm going to do all this other stuff. Right. It's it's like the 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 landlord patch ups. Right. I'm going to make it look really, really, really nice. But you're never going to see the crumbling foundation that's underneath until it's too late and until it's too late. Oof. So, you know, I, it, so I, I want to make sure because I'm, I'm not sure like I'm like, is this going to be the road that we go down for this for today's conversation? Or do you want to tap into something else? Let me know. What, what do you want to push back on? What is the other conversation that you want to have tonight? You know, uh, I I like things to just emerge organically. Wherever they go is where they go. Um, I am open to discuss, you know, I'm open to answer questions, any type of questions that are asked. But I am definitely one who, um, I like to see where things go. Um, I, I If we do want to identify anything, uh, I would definitely like to touch on um, 
education in its current state as it relates to the mass uh, incarceration policies in the United States. Mass incarceration in the United States is a whole industry like agriculture or tourism or, or anything else. It's a whole money-making industry. And the, the system, the academic or public education system has a lot to do with how successful or not successful that industry is. And right now that industry is very successful, very lucrative. And um, I've got my own thoughts about <laughs> why school is the public education is the way it is uh, as it relates to the mass incarceration economy. So we can touch on that if you'd like. Yeah, well, let's dive into this idea, right? You, you've already mentioned that, and you're, you you believe that for the most part, school is this illusion, right? This that this idea that it, it's smoke and mirrors, right? We're putting up a great facade and a great show. And some may say, as I pointed out, well, maybe it's just out of embarrassment and shame, right? Whereas others, and I think that you and I lean heavily into this space to say, is it though? Right. Or is this an intentional system? Right. I, I, I say this oftentimes as systems do what systems are designed to do. Yes. And we and we see the outcomes. Yes. And it's it's really hard to believe that these are mistakes, that That's they're flaws, right. that they're just happenstance, right? So do you think there's a connection between this idea that there's this illusion, right? This is that's of what we're seeing in our educational spaces. And essentially, as we pointed out or referenced a few moments ago, the school to prison pipeline. I, me, me personally, you know, and this is just my own personal opinion. I believe it's absolutely intentional. I believe that the failure that we have not only seen this year, last year, pre-COVID, everybody wants to blame everything on COVID. This failure was long before COVID, long before COVID. This, in my opinion, is absolutely intentional. If, if one would have to ask what the purpose of the U.S. Department of Education is, the state-level departments of education, what are the purposes? What are the purposes of these entities if achievement is not at the top of the priority mm -hmm. of you know top of the list of priorities there? Well, obviously, achievement is not at the top of the list of priorities because achievement is so poor. Literacy is the foundation to all of the success that uh, society will have in, in education and in their professional lives, in our professional lives. Literacy is the foundation. Yet, we continually fund system a system where seven out of ten members of that system can't read proficiently. We fund a, a system where four, three out of four African American seniors graduate unprepared to do well at the college level. Well, we know this. So if 70% of the students can't read, the, the, the percentages are higher for Hispanic and Black students. But if 70% of the student body can't read, when they go to college, how are they being successful in college? Well, I believe those books are being cooked as well because colleges are money-making entities. And as long as they're being paid for a body to be there in, in, in the classroom, book cooking will go on there too to ensure that their students are more likely to graduate with a degree than not. They don't do well. Colleges don't do well if students drop out. So they're going to make sure that, the college, that their college students make it, whether it's through remedial classes at the college level, maybe zero credit courses. Maybe they are a lot softer with their grading practices, whatever it takes for the college students to make it through, they're willing to do. Well, these same people are also going to the military. 
or going out into the work world and they can't read and they can barely write if they can write, where does that leave us competitively in a, an increasingly global business market? We have people coming from other countries who speak multiple languages and who run circles around our kids academically. How are we going to compete on that level? But yet we know that this failure goes on. We know it persists, but yet nothing is being done to stop the bleeding. So let's look at COVID. Here comes COVID in 2020. COVID shut down the schools, forced a lot of students onto the computer for learning. And a lot of parents got to see exactly what their kids could do, exactly what was being taught, how it was being taught, and the mess that a lot of online learning was at that time. So COVID essentially shined the light on the problem. So the government ponied up billions of dollars, billions of COVID-related dollars to (laughs) help close these gaps that arose from going online learning. I still need someone to tell me what exactly has been done to address these gaps. What different have we done? We're still teaching kids on their grade level and not their functional level. If we're not teaching them at their functional level, we are providing an illusion of learning. It's an illusion. So, Dr. Need, mm-hmm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 go ahead. What I was going to say is what we need to do is stop pretending like we're doing something and actually do something. Why don't we go back to actually teaching kids? So you have a third grader reading on a pre-K level. They're not going to be ready to take your almighty standardized test in the spring. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. They can take the test, but they're not going to pass. So why don't we stop wasting so much time trying to prepare them for a test that they're not going to pass? Assess them. Find out where their gaps start and start filling those gaps right there. Now, that makes perfect sense, but yet schools don't do that because they have to be ready for the standardized test in the spring that they're not going to be ready for because they're two, three, four grade levels behind in their reading. But we have to push this and we have to prepare them because they have to take that test in the spring. Even though we know that they don't know the material, they can't read it, they're not going to be able to read it. But yet, intelligent people still push for that. That's nonsense, absolute nonsense. Whereas we could just simply go back, find out where those gaps start, fill them, and then eventually they'll be able to take the dumb test and pass it or not pass it, but they'll be better able to take it. But no, we don't do that. We continue to think by osmosis, they're going to somehow learn everything that they need to know by spring so they can be prepared to take that test that you and I both know they're not going to pass. Smoke and mirrors, the illusion of learning. Smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. And so it sounds like you know, I, I I've said this before, and it sounds like you're 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 echoing a very similar sentiment that we we keep talking about educational reform, right? That this idea that we're going to reform education, it's messed up. We're going to reform education, but you you bring up a great point. At what point, or what other industry, can you do what is currently happening in education and and still be allowed to operate? I mean, can you could you imagine a doctor? as you pointed out, like the seven out of 10, could you imagine a doctor who that says like, well, Hey, you know, seven out of 10 of my patients don't make it. 
who, who who's going to that doctor, right? Honestly, right. So it's this idea to say we we keep saying reform. I argue that it's it's not reform. It's repackaging. It's right? repackaging. We, right. We we put a new shiny label on it. Some fancy new words. We shine it up a bit, and we throw it back out and say, hey, this this is the newest biggest thing. It's going to work. Even though we tried this three, four cycles ago and it didn't mm-hmm. work then, maybe it right. will work now. But as you pointed out, and, and those of you listening, and, and I'm, I'm sure, right? And I've said this before, if, you, if you're coming into this space, more than likely you're like, hey, we get it. There's things that are messed up. We're having these conversations. But there, do the research. There is a very strong correlation between students' academic performance and the likelihood of incarceration. There's a a huge, huge correlation between the two. And so that if we we throw in the idea that so many of our prisons are now privatized, right? So literally, as you pointed out earlier, people are making money off off of individuals going to prison. The only way for me to run a successful business is by by earning a profit. And the fact that these prisons are not spaces of, uh, you know, what what is the word I'm looking for? The idea that I'm going to come in, reform, right? I'm going to help you. You're going to learn. I'm going to put you back out into society as hopefully a better functioning individual. No, there are prisons that are businesses. And the only way, the only way I'm going to earn a profit, the only way it's going to remain open is by having individuals. And what is the easiest way to make sure that that space has individuals by underperforming, right? By failing to deliver a high quality education and not just to all, but to targeted populations. Yes. Make sure that those prisons stay full. And then to say, oops, what are we doing wrong? Right. Let's take a look at this. And I, I encourage you, right? We're this this is not necessarily right. We're gonna, not going to be able to cover every single aspect of it in this conversation. But there's plenty of research. There's plenty of information out there. Go down that rabbit hole. I encourage you, if you're listening to this, go down that rabbit hole and see what you find. I guess my question, Dr. Sanders, for you is this is widely spoken in very small circles. Right, it's a big conversation, and very small spaces. Why isn't this a much larger conversation? Why isn't this, you know, headlines, you know, in the news? Why is this, you know, big topics at conferences? Why, why is it a big conversation in small spaces? Again, this is my own um, personal perspective here, but I believe that there are many influential people who are heavily invested in the mass incarceration economy, whether it's through relatives with healthy, healthy federal contracts to run these prisons, the makers of the uniforms, they're invested in that. The security necessary, the cameras, the locks, the prison furniture, the steel uh, necessary that's needed for the bars, the concrete that's necessary for the the uh, the structure. There are people directly and uh, influential people directly and indirectly invested in the companies that provide not only the supervision for the prison, but also for everything necessary to build, maintain, and sustain privileges. I mean, prisons such as the food vendors, the uh, lighting and and uh, wiring and everything that goes into prisons and maintaining prisons. You're not going to likely find Senator John Smith, made up name here, uh as an investor in you know Bob's uniforms and patches company but they are the ones with the federal contract for 25 million dollars a year to provide inmates with their clothing the staff with their clothing clothing for these at these prisons but that person's in-law 
or nephew or nephew by marriage or someone like that is connected to that where they are part of that connection, but just not directly if you were to go and look. I believe that much of Washington, D.C. is heavily invested in a lot of this stuff, the policing, the surveillance, all of that. It is a very lucrative business. For example, um, I'll give you an example of what I, I know with contractors. Okay, so North Texas Job Corps. If you, go, if you Google my name and North Texas Job Corps, you will come up with different articles and news bites and other things where you'll see, you know, my, my efforts to expose a lot of the just out-and-out out corruption that was going on in this program. For those of you who are not familiar with Job Corps, Job Corps is a training, vocational educational program where students from ages 16 to 25 live on centers throughout the United States. And they are supposed to, um, if they don't have their education finished, they're to finish their um, high school education. There are also um, opportunities to attend college and to learn a trade. So I worked there back in 2013. If that were indeed the case, it would have been a dream job dream job. But of course, that was not the case. And it didn't take long for me to figure out. So this is not really why this place exists. What it was, was a haven for drugs, drug sales, uh, students, uh, a lot of sexual encounters between students, violence, fights. It was just, it was just wild. I mean, the they were fed three times a day there they had you know classes to go to they had job training to go to but it was all an illusion it was absolutely incredibly wild i i was stunned well the contractors were making millions millions off of that center and they owned, these contractors owned multiple, uh, I'm sorry, ran multiple centers. So to bid for these contracts, you know, you're going to make millions. And they did. You would think these young people, now these are the marginalized kids, the ones who didn't make it, you know, through high school, the ones who were just like, this is their last chance. So you would think, okay, good. This is an opportunity for them to learn, get their education together. Rubbish, smoke and mirrors. The education component of it was absolutely trash, trash, trash. However, the vendors made tons of money. When I complained about it and spoke to the, you know, sent complaints to the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Labor, nobody got back to me ever. And it ended up just being this big giant lawsuit. And <laughs> the contractors still walk away making millions. So these same contractors also have contracts to teach incarcerated adults and youth how to read. So get this, sir. We won't teach you how to read in K through 12, but we will teach you how to read when you go to the penitentiary and they'll make millions doing it. Now you tell me that's not intentional. If you, know, you talk about how to read from K through 12, they might never make it to the penitentiary. penitentiary. They might actually have a shot at being successful in life and never see the inside of the penitentiary. But no, we'll pay for your college education inside the penitentiary. No, you're not going to get out for 25, 50 years or ever. But we'll let you earn a college degree in the penitentiary. Job Corps, it costs 50 at, at, in 2013, 
50, about $54,000 per year per student to house, feed, educate, and train those students. Those students leave Job Corps and they go to work at fast food places. They go to work or they don't go to work at all. They go to work at Walmart or places that they could have gone to work without ever going to Job Corps. But that same $54,000 at the right college could have paid for an entire college education. But that's not what it was used for. So it seems as though the powers that be, they'll make the, the investment up front, $54,000. So what? Because in X amount of years, we'll make this, 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 and this when they end up in prison. And I personally think it's intentional. I mean, it's hard to argue that it isn't. When you, when you sit and you look at the connections, when you sit and you look at the numbers, when you sit and you even just run through the processes, the idea that, you know, the fact that young, especially African-American males are about three times more likely to be, to be suspended. Right. And, and oftentimes for like discretionary things like, well, exactly. they were, they were rude, right. They were not following school rules, right. They were disruptive, right. These, these very discretionary processes, right. And, and we talk about these cyclical behaviors, the idea that oftentimes schools will bypass, uh, you know, do, uh, due process, Right. Because the parents don't understand because their parents didn't get an education, you know, so, hey, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and put your child out. The idea that more often than not, a child who is suspended or expelled from school find their way into the juvenile justice system and or going into prison as an adult. Right. As you already pointed out, then sure, we'll give you a little bit of skills and understanding. But when you get out of those spaces right now, you are marked. Right. It's very challenging to, to get a job, depending, again, on a number of demographics. Right. And so it becomes a very cyclical process. Mm-hmm. And, and yet there are individuals who say, no, 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 that's not true. There's no way. Right. Go to school, get an education. It is the key to you know success and happiness. And you're right. It can be. For some individuals under very certain circumstances, right? But for a large portion of our population, the reality is that is not always necessarily true. And what we can see, like as you pointed out, we don't want to have that conversation, right? There's much of, you know, the reality of the things that are happening within, you know, our systems that are just like, eh, we, we don't want to bring that to light. Because it would it would be harmful to our images, right? It would be harmful to the you know to the individuals involved in it. So, mm-hmm. I I, I want to ask you then as we as we come to the the final stage of this conversation, I'm sure there are individuals who are listening and saying, Doctor Sanders, I hear you, right? I believe you. I agree with you. But I'm just a teacher. I'm just a you know a, an administrator. I'm just whatever. Fill in the blank. What can I do right within my space so that way I'm not contributing? I'm not pushing students into this detrimental pipeline that will not just only decimate their lives, but potentially right the lives of their future generations. What can I do to disrupt that system? Gosh, I I wish I had a really great answer that's, well, here's what you can do while you're in the school setting. And I really don't think that I have that. My gut answer says, get out, start your own program that works and teach these kids. I know that that's not feasible for everyone and it's not practical. So what I will say is, recognize that that is the reality that's going on. And if you can't stop it, 
don't add to it. Decide what manner of human being and educator you're going to be and don't make it worse. But the reality is, is teachers have no power. Teachers have no say. And let's stretch that a little bit further. Campus administrators have minimal power. Campus administrators do what they're told to do from central office. And so there are teachers, for example, who have been trained with uh, in the area of science of reading, which is a very effective way to teach young children and older children to read. Very effective. But yet they're told they cannot use it in the school setting. They want to use it in the school setting. They want to use their skills and knowledge, but they are told that they cannot. I remember when I worked in, in a district in my early years of teaching, the reading um, inclusion teacher had a, had a reading system called Edmark. And Edmark was often used for students with developmental disabilities. And it was a, a way that they were able to teach many students how to read using whole words and pictures. And it, it was very um, simplistic, but effective. I've seen it work. So I know it's effective. It, it, it works. Okay. I remember her being devastated when she was told by her campus principal that she had to box it up and prepare it for the warehouse people to come and take it away because they cannot use that anymore. And she was saying to me, but I mean, I'm having success with this one and that one and this one with this particular program. And she was told, no, pack it up because we were told we can't use that anymore. My thought is if you have something that's being successful, why stop? Mm-hmm. I could see if it's being harmful, but this handful of students saw success with this particular approach. Okay, well then, if if they're learning using this, go ahead and learn. But no, it was pack it up, and she was devastated. Pack it up, warehouse folks will come and get it whenever. And that's that's where that's where that was left. And I just thought you're gonna get rid of something that you know is working for some of the students. If it's not working for all of the students, I get it. Okay, but save it for those who it is working for, because that's working for them. But no, she had to ditch the whole thing. Well, I believe when it comes down to the curriculum and the things that schools buy that they're going to use to present to students, we are, of course, seeing that with reading, we know that it's not about research and outcomes, but I personally believe it's about who is getting kickbacks from this particular curriculum being implemented. Why are we choosing this and who is making money off of it? It's still follow the money. It's not just the district. Well, let's buy this one because no, no, somebody is getting something from this curriculum being presented. It is the same thing with standardized testing. That's why, in my opinion, that's why it changes. After five, six years, states choose another test. It's so everybody can get a a chance to make some money. That's just what I think. It's so everybody can get a chance to make some money. Toss, tax, star. I mean, and that's just in the time that I was teaching. Why does it need to change? If it's effective, why does it need to change every so many years? Well, because somebody else wants to bring in somebody with this test, or maybe the testing creators have offered a different kickback and the right people want to get their share. Nobody can tell me that that's not the fact. Standardized testing, uh, Dallas ISD spent $4 billion on standardized testing. And I think it was in 2021 or 2022, $4 billion, billion, 
with a B. B on standardized testing. When we know the kids can't read, okay, I need you to stop. When we know the students can't read, we know they can't read. Why are we spending $4 billion, $4 billion on this? We're also, um, we moved the testing from paper to electronic. So now it's computer-based. So now this test, which they have four hours to take, unless they have special accommodations that allow more time, if they have four hours to take, and they have to stay focused on that computer for four hours to complete this test, you and I are educated, functional adults. Four hours on a test on the computer would be a lot for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the hour Zoom meetings that we have are a lot for us. Are a lot for us. So they have to sit there for four hours, listening to the computer read to them. They're bored. They're zoning in and out. They weren't taught to take the test on that computer. They weren't, most of their teaching to prepare for the test was not done on that computer. So now you're going to throw the computer at them and their limited knowledge of the software, the testing software is automatically problematic and will definitely contribute to testing errors and lower scores. Plus they're bored. When they use their computers at home, they're usually doing something fun on them. What you've just given them is not fun, entertaining. They're not interested in the in the topic. So they're just clicking. Why are we moving all of the testing, the map testing to find out where the kids are? Why are we moving all of that to all of that to the computer when Paper-based might net you more accurate outcomes. But no, everything is moving towards the technology, technology, technology. So now you give the kids Chromebooks and most of their work is done on a Chromebook where very little writing is actually happening. And I mean very little. Very little paper-to-pencil writing is happening. At least that's been my observation. So when I tell you that, we're not setting up our kids to lead. We're setting up our kids to be led. And I guess we're enjoying the last remnants of being the superpower of the world because clearly, academically, we're not. We don't teach our kids how to read. We don't teach them how to write. We don't teach them how to vet information. And we don't teach them how to research. In the information age, more than 70% of our students don't know how to effectively access and use information. That is unconscionable unconscionable and you cannot tell me that that's not intentional well you know as you pointed out right it's this idea of becoming consumers not so much as producers right and so when you you create that imbalance that's that's bound to happen but i i want to say thank you you when i was asking about you know what what can people do right And and there were a few things that you mentioned one was Right. If you feel that there's nothing right at the bare minimum, don't contribute. Right. Yeah. Think about the next time you're sending a kid out of your classroom because they're quote unquote being disrespectful. Right. And what is that? What might that potentially mean for that student? And yeah, it is putting them into, you know, an office which potentially will lead to a suspension. Is that necessary in that space? Right. So being being mindful of the much larger potential outcomes, right? I, I like the fact that you pointed out, go go and be a radical, be be a rebel and say, look, you know what? I, I can't be a part of this system. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. And as I often tell educators, you're not alone in those spaces. I know it may feel like it, at least in the beginning, 
but you're not alone. And when you venture off and you and you launch these startups, when you when you try being innovative and doing something different, more often than not, you're going to find like-minded individuals who were waiting, sitting around waiting for somebody else to do the very thing that they had hoped to do. Right. And so as you mentioned, you started, hey, you know what? I'm I'm gonna start my own. Right, these small school safaris, right? These small groups of individuals. It's my way of making sure that I'm not part of that system. It's my way of making sure that my students aren't part of that system. It's my way of making sure that we are breaking that pipeline. Right. And then third, the last thing that I heard you saying is literally just fighting back, right? F- asking the difficult questions, following the money, doing the research. And when we when you stumble upon those pieces of information, highlighting it for the public to see, and calling people out on, on the bull that they're, they're they're trying to claim as education. So I appreciate you know the, those three pieces there for individuals who are listening, the things that they can do to to combat this concept, this this very real the, the reality of the school to prison pipeline. I and 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 I would like to add because it's it's so easy for for us to you know hey you know make sure you speak up and and you say something and and gosh I wish we all could but the reality is sir is that the teachers who do speak up are very often targeted they are very often targeted so you know um was it John Lewis I believe who was talking about good trouble be prepared because when you do speak up and when you do uh, point out where the uh, the errors are in the machine, you're likely to be targeted professionally. And, you know, um, pe- they, they don't like boat rockers. And, and I consider myself a professional boat rocker uh, because especially at, you know, at this point in life, I don't care. I, I, I don't care. I, it's like, you know what, I, I walked away from, you know, uh, what I felt like was a decent salary, you know, uh, to venture out on my own. And I don't make anywhere near the money that I made before, but I sure am happier and more fulfilled now than I have ever been as an educator. But I also know that I'm the one that I'll say something and then, you know, all of a sudden, the administrators want to nitpick everything or, you know, they want to come and say, well, you know, what about this? This doesn't, they want to watch and scrutinize everything you do. They, they, they are there to protect the machine. Central office is there to protect the machine. I, I speak loud, you know, very loudly about public education because I'm out. I'm out. I can speak loudly. I can tell the truth because I'm out, but I understand teachers who are still there. You know, I, I applaud you all for still being there, giving it everything that you've got. I know it's hard and there is no judgment from me. Uh, and, and Charles either, I'm sure there's no judgment that you all uh, choose to stay and, and to do the best you can. It's hard, but just know that when you do speak up, you're very likely to be targeted but I'm at a place in life where I may not make the same money. I may not have the benefits and all that, but I am more fulfilled now than I have ever been. And, and I, I like to post my successes with my kids so people can see that it is possible. You know, sir, I do believe small schools, um, teachers are starting more and more to bet on their own skills. And that's what I really encourage teachers to do. If you're in a situation where your family can afford for you to try or to do so, bet on your own skills because the system's not going to get any better. It's just not. And um, if you feel like you want to be part of the solution, that's a good way to do it by getting out and striking out on your own. But if you have to stay, do what you can. Sometimes just speaking kind words to students, being that light in their lives in the middle of all that darkness, if that's all you can do, then do that. But just don't be part of the problem. 
Well, Dr. Sanders, I, I want to say thank you. I love that idea of betting on your own skills, right? Saying, hey, you know what? I've got this. We're going to try to do this thing. I, I thank you so much. So I, I, I just want to to say that, right? Thank you, not just for being on the show, but thank you for for doing the work, for being a model to say, you know what? I, I'm going to step out of that comfort zone. I'm going to step out into the unknown and, and in my own way, wage my own battle, push back, breaking those systems and serving as an example for others who can follow you. So with for that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's very kind. And and sir, you know, I, I, I've had many people on Twitter, uh, Instagram reach out to me asking me questions and I'm open. So, hey, you know, my phone number is on is out there on the internet. My 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 email address and Safari Small Schools, all of that is out there. You can reach me through that information. Reach me on social media if you have questions. It, I am an open book. I believe in sharing the knowledge. Just reach out. Let me know, and I, I'll answer any questions I can. Well, there we go. And those of you listening, I, I hope that you do reach out to to Dr. Sanders continue these conversations, continue learning and growing from one another. But Dr. Sanders, I am sure that you and I, our paths have not yet done crossing. So I look forward to future conversations. Again, thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and of course, share it with friends and family. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please leave a comment or two as well. Now, I'm not sure what platform you're using, but the show can be found on Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. If the show isn't on your preferred site, let me know, and I'll be sure to get it up and running. This podcast is also featured on schoolrubric.com, where you can find educational articles, videos, and interviews with educators from around the globe. Be sure to connect with me and other listeners by following the show on Twitter at The CN Podcast and joining the show's Facebook group. Take care.